Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today we're continuing our conversations on the American Civil War, 1865. And I'm delighted to welcome tonight Professor John Marzalak, who is retired from Mississippi State University. He is a noted historian of the American South and the Civil War. He's edited 13 books, and he is currently working on another book about the mythology surrounding Robert E. Lee and William Tecumseh Sherman. And we're here tonight to talk about Sherman, and John has written a very, very readable book, Sherman, A Soldier's Passion for Order. John, welcome to Columbia, South Carolina. Well, thank you. Let's talk something about the young Sherman, because everybody knows about the Sherman, certainly the Sherman of 1864 and 65 down here. But what about the, the young Sherman? Let's have some background on him. Yeah, William comes to Sherman, was born in Lancaster, Ohio, in 1820. Uh, his father was a lawyer, very well-known lawyer in Ohio, and then he, uh, he became a judge. Sherman himself was one of many children, brothers and sisters, and when he was nine years old, his family suffered the tragedy of his father dying suddenly, leaving behind some very big debts, so much so that the children had to be doled out to various relatives and friends and Sherman himself, the young Sherman, nine years old, going on 10, was doled out to the Thomas Ewing family. Thomas Ewing was a very famous politician that period, lived literally just up the hill from where Sherman grew up. So he spent his childhood with his mother living about 200 feet away, but living in the family of, a, of another uh, individual. And I think the important thing, there's a lot of other things we could say about him, but I think the important thing to remember is he was determined that no matter what happened, he would not leave his children and his wife in that same situation. So he worked like crazy all his life to be successful. The title of that book, A Soldier's Passion for Order, in his mind, order was the most important thing. He had to have order in society. And jumping ahead of the story, secession he saw as the ultimate disorder. And therefore, he had to do what he could do to prevent it from happening. Of course, one of the ways he sought to support himself to make his way in the world was as a soldier. Right. Yes. Okay. So he goes, he's a West Pointer. He wouldn't say he was a terrific West Point cadet, although he finished sixth in his class, but he could have finished earlier, uh, I mean higher, pardon me, but he just really didn't like all the spit and polish that West Point required of people, so he actually lost several places in his class because he got too many demerits, and it was things like his buttons weren't shined and his gig line wasn't straight, but when he graduates from West Point, he sent down to Florida. And the interesting thing about Sherman, for most of his life then, until he quits the Army in 1854, and except for the time he's in California, most of the time he spends in the South. Most of the time he's in places like South Carolina, in the Charleston Harbor, in that area. And he develops a lot of close Southern friends during that period, people that he hangs on to or be, stays friends with uh, really for the rest of his uh, life. And I imagine everybody here is a, is a Gamecock fan. Mm -hmm. I come from Mississippi State, you know, the, the home of the Bulldogs. And I used to always tell my, my students that, you know, when you play LSU, and if LSU beats you, Bulldogs, I said, you know, that's okay. Just tell them. Yeah, you might beat us on the football field, but guess who your first president was? <laughs> William Tecumseh Sherman. And he was actually stationed at Fort Moultrie in Charleston Harbor. Yes, right, exactly, in, in Fort Moultrie. Fort Moultrie is, was an interesting, interesting place because it was close enough to Charleston that the officers could come into Charleston fairly easily, and they would be invited to all of the social events. And interestingly enough, though Sherman had a lot of friends, he didn't particularly like those formal balls and little official uh, social events because he said it was too stilted. 
he really enjoyed more just talking to the average person, to talk to the soldier, to talk to somebody he might run into on the streets of Charleston. But he does. He goes to a lot of those things because he considers it part of his duty. It's a duty, he sees it, to go to a party. And that gives you some <laughs> idea. Okay. And when he does leave the service, he goes to LSU or the Louisiana College. Right. Well, even before that, Sherman, when he retires, he becomes a banker, of all things. He has some friends in uh, Missouri. He goes to California, and in California, he runs a branch bank of this big St. Louis bank. Well, what happens is the, the economic situation in California, because of the gold rush and, and, and various other issues, is terrible. So the banks are having enormous difficulty keeping things balanced. And Sherman does one of the best jobs of anybody, keeping his bank balanced, but it finally fails. So then he's sent to New York to be, again, a, a banker for the same bank. The Panic of 1857 hits. He loses his shirt again. So what's he going to do? Well, he doesn't want to do this, by the way, but he doesn't have much choice. He's going to go and work with his foster brothers in Kansas. And he, there he's going to become a lawyer. And, and they, excuse me, these are the Ewings? Yeah, Ewing. the Ewings, right. And he becomes a lawyer and he becomes a real estate guy. This doesn't work out either, believe it or not. But he then does go to, um, to Louisiana and he's the founding superintendent of the Louisiana Military Seminary. And he loves it, absolutely loves it. He loves the students, loves all of the, the people that, he, that he's there, makes a lot of friends and faculty in the area. And by the way, uh, the people who supported him for this position uh, were two people you may have heard of, Braxton Bragg and P.G.T. Beauregard. <laughs> were friends of... And when secession comes, Sherman is asked by Beauregard and Bragg and others to join the Confederate Army. They want him to be, become part of the, the Confederate Army. He loves Louisiana that much. But, as I mentioned earlier, this, this concept of order, he sees that if secession works and the country is split, there's no chance for people like him to be successful. He equates himself and his, his uh, present and future with that situation. So he goes back to Ohio. But there's a very touching scene. He calls all the cadets and all the faculty members together for a final roll call, so to speak. And he stands up in front of them and he starts telling them that he's going to be leaving, that he can't stay, it's a matter of principle, and he feels this way, so he's going to have to leave them. And halfway through his speech, he breaks down and starts crying. And all he can finally say is, but I will keep you in my, and he points to his heart, I will keep you in my heart. And then he turns around and walks off the parade ground and then leaves Louisiana. All right, he leaves Louisiana, and how does he get back in the Army? Well, that's the interesting thing. He does go back to Ohio, and his wife, Ellen, who also happens to be his foster sister, uh, they become engaged when, when he is in the South and she is living in, uh, in Ohio. So they grow up together as they're young children, but they, beyond that, they only write to each other and they fall in love, etc. But she wants him to go in the Army. You must go in the Army. It's your duty. You say that you, you want to. He doesn't want to. And the reason he doesn't, one of the main reasons he doesn't want to is because his brother, John Sherman, who is a, um, uh, was a member of the House of Representatives and is becoming a senator from Ohio, takes him to see the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. And John Sherman says to his brother and to Lincoln, well, Mr. President, uh, my brother has been in Louisiana. So Lincoln says, well, how are things going down there? And Sherman starts in, Sherman's very, talks very rapidly, et cetera, just gives him the whole story, says it's a disaster, you people are not taking the South seriously enough, you're going to lose this thing, you better do something, to which Lincoln said, oh, I think we'll be okay. Well, Sherman leaves the, the executive mansion, as it was called, and when his brother gets outside and just excoriates him, said, with a president like this, how are you ever going to be able to win this, this war? You're just not going to be able to do it. 
So he doesn't want to, to get in the Army. But through politics, he's offered uh, a job as Assistant Secretary of War. He won't take it. But he goes off and gets a job as a street railroad president, the president of a St. Louis street railway company, you know, trolley cars, basically. Or right, has the war started yet? Or is it, or, no. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, it's so coming it, close. It's, okay. It's, it's getting close. Okay. And this is a famous episode where um, the Confederates and the Union supporters battle each other over who's going to control some areas of, uh, of St. Louis. And uh, Sherman is caught in the middle. He's got to lay down on the ground, jump on top of his little son to protect them from the, uh, from the gunfire, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, his family continues the pressure on him. Now you really have to join. And he does. He, he, he joins the Army, and he at first does inspection duty for Winfield Scott. So he does that, and then he gets a position as a brigade commander in a division that is part of the attacking force at First Manassas, First Bull Run, and then goes from there. Around here is Manassas. Yeah, I was going to say, right. <laughs> Of course, there in Virginia, they also call it Bull Run, so I, you know, I don't know. That's for tourism up yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so his first military, I mean, he literally is involved in the first battle of the war. Right. But how does he end up out west? Well, let me back up. You know, I think the story of Manassas, Erwin McDowell is the Union commander. He is going to, uh, trying to achieve a flanking movement around the Confederates there guarding Manassas. And it doesn't work. And it's ironic because, to give you some idea how both sides were so similar, both generals, Beauregard for the uh, Confederacy and Erwin McDowell for the Union, came up with the exact same battle plan. Here's the Confederates. Here's the Union Army. The idea is the Union Army is going to flank the Confederates. Meanwhile, the Confederate flank is to flank the Union. <laughs> so if they both had worked, and actually the federal forces got a better start, so the Confederates couldn't do it, but it doesn't take much imagination to realize that if they both had taken off, it would have been like a dog chasing his tail. <laughs> you know, and, you know. But anyway, we know what, what happened. Uh, we know the story of Stonewall Jackson and all, and the Union forces break and hustle, run, skedaddle, was the word during the Civil War, skedaddle uh, back to Washington. Sherman is one of the officers who comes out of that battle looking pretty good because everything he does in that battle is the right thing to do. And he actually calms down the skedaddle and allows for a more orderly retreat. Now, how does he get out west? Well, our friend Lincoln needs to send somebody out west. And he calls on Robert Anderson. Remember the man who was at Fort Sumter? So he calls on him. He says, will you go and become the commander in Kentucky? And we need to raise troops, and the Confederates are doing things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Anderson says, okay, but I've got a young man that I'd really like to uh, have as my assistant. That happened to be William Tecumseh Sherman. So Sherman and Anderson go to the White House and Lincoln makes the pitch, and Sherman listens to it, and he said, okay, I'll go, but only under one condition, that I will never be called upon to be the commander. I'll be subordinate, I'll be second in command, but I'll never be the commanding officer, to which Lincoln says, oh, thank heavens, I don't have enough jobs <laughs> for everybody. So sure, that's great. So he ends up in Kentucky, and what happens to poor Anderson? Anderson, you remember, had some difficult times at uh, Fort Sumter. And he basically, his health breaks in Kentucky. So guess who becomes the commanding general? <laughs> William Tecumseh Sherman. And remember, he feels very strongly that the Union is not doing what it ought to be doing. That the Confederates are going to take over. Kentucky, and once they take over Kentucky, they're going to cross the Ohio River and they're going to take over Ohio. So he feels very strongly about this. And then the other thing that really starts bothering him is he realizes that he is going to have to be fighting his friends, these Southerners that he's been so friendly with all these years before the war. 
They're the ones that he's going to be fighting against, and he doesn't want to do that. He goes through a terrible depression. And I did some, when I was working on this book, I did some study about depressions and the different kinds. And from what I gather from um, physicians, et cetera, you can be depressed and you don't know why you're depressed, or you can be depressed and you know why you're depressed. Sherman knew why he was depressed. He didn't want to be in this war. He didn't want to have command. He didn't believe the Union was doing what it had to do. So he has a terrible depression to the point that he says in a later letter that he came close to committing suicide. The thing that kept him from taking his own life was his children. Remember I said earlier, he's not going to leave his children without the kind of support that they need. And what finally finishes him off in Kentucky is Simon Cameron, the Secretary of War, comes for a visit. And in this visit, he says, Sherman, what do you need? And Sherman says, I need 200,000 more troops to fight against the, <laughs> against the Confederates in this area. And, and Cameron, who's not a good Secretary of War, throws up his hands and says, my God, where am I going to get those numbers from? And Sherman says to him, well, there's plenty of people who want to volunteer. You're turning people away. But that's because we don't have enough guns and so on and so on. But in any case, there's some newspaper people in the room. And Sherman cannot stand newsmen. He hates newspaper. Any reporters in here, too? <laughs> Taking down what I'm saying? But anyway, you know, he hates reporters to the point that when he takes over in, uh, in Kentucky, he eliminates, kicks out of his camp all the reporters who are there. So the word gets out about what Sherman says to Cameron because there are some reporters in the room. They don't like him because he's been throwing them out. In fact, he threatened to hang a couple of reporters if they didn't get out. He still is the only person that I'm aware of who ever court-martialed an American reporter. This was at Vicksburg, but that's a whole other story. So, you know, you have this, this situation. So what happens is the Cincinnati commercial on December 11th publishes a story about Sherman in Kentucky, and the headline is Sherman insane <laughs> because they argue you got to be crazy to, to be throwing all of us good guys out of the army <laughs> and secondly you got to be you know look at all these the, what you went through this depression nobody knows what insanity is and there is no such thing as insanity you know you have different names for, for mental diseases but in those days if you had any difficulty like that you were considered insane so Sherman literally has to go home for about two weeks, 10 days, and rest up just to get his act together again. When he comes back, he gets the job as a trainer of uh, new recruits in Benton Barracks in, in Missouri, and he stays there until he comes in contact with U.S. Grant. But that's another story. Well, I'm loving hearing this story. This is a part of Sherman that we don't, we don't know. We'll get to South Carolina eventually. Eventually, okay. But we all know how that story ends anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody knows what happened. Yeah, right. Okay, so he meets up with U.S. Grant. And in terms of personality, they seem pretty different folks oh, to me. Yeah, they really are. They're totally different. The real difference between them, I think. The reason they get along, and it seems like such a simplistic thing, they get along because they trust each other. Actually, Sherman outranks Grant. He's got more seniority. Uh, Grant is three years younger than Sherman. He graduates from West Point in 1843. Sherman graduates in 1840. So Sherman's got him by seniority. But he says to Grant, look, Grant, I will do whatever you want me to do. I will be your subordinate. Don't worry about it. Just do what you have to do. And that trust begins at this time when Sherman is sent to Paducah, Kentucky, to send supplies up to Grant, who's involved in the Forts Henry Fort Donaldson episodes. And as he would send up supplies to Grant, he would write little notes to him. Hang in there, Grant. I like what you're doing. Go for it. It's simple things, but he would keep sending. So the two developed a very strong relationship, a friendship. And it got to the point later on in the war when Sherman makes a very, very interesting statement. He says, I know for a fact that Grant will come to my rescue 
if he is alive. And Grant felt the same way. Sherman would do things, would accept orders that hurt his own possibility for promotion or whatever, but they worked together. Now, the, the intriguing thing about all this is many generals in the Civil War were interested in promotion, self-serving. Uh, you don't see that with Grant and, uh, and Sherman. They believe in each other. They trust in each other. They, they know that the other one will, will look after, after his, uh, his back, where many officers, both on the Union and Confederate side, don't have that situation. I like to argue that one of the main reasons that the uh, Federals won the Civil War was because of this friendship between Grant and Sherman. They were able to do things that they would not have been able to do by themselves. Okay. And then, of course, we're going to probably need to move on down to Vicksburg. Yes. Okay. okay. We, do, we do. We need to... We need to get to Mississippi, after all. My gosh. <laughs> I, 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 do have, I do have to tell you that um, the president of Mississippi State University, Mark Keenum, is, uh, is a young guy, great Civil War enthusiast. And when the Ulysses Grant Presidential Library came to Mississippi State, we, get, we still get a lot of questions about how this happened, how could Grant's stuff be in Mississippi and all that. <laughs> And the president, uh, the first time he was asked this by the Chicago Tribune, said, how is it possible that Grant could be uh, in Mississippi? President Keenum said, well, my goodness, if it wasn't for Mississippi, nobody had ever heard of Ulysses S. Grant. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, what happens is Vicksburg is the sole place on the Mississippi River uh, which is preventing the Federals from having control over the entire uh, Mississippi River. So the question is, how can this Gibraltar of the West uh, be taken? Well, in December of 1862, at six, seven months before July of 63, when it actually falls, Grant begins his campaign at that time. He tells Sherman, take your men out of Memphis, put them on boats, go down the Mississippi River. Meanwhile, I'll take some more soldiers and I'll march down through the middle of Mississippi through the Grenada Railroad route. We'll meet and we'll have the Confederates caught in between, you know, two forces and we'll capture Vicksburg. Well, the problem is a fellow named Van Dorn, a a Confederate commander, decides to raid and burn Grant's supply depot at Holly Springs, Mississippi. So there are no supplies. So Grant decides he can't come. Sherman keeps coming. He attacks a Chickasaw Bayou and is wiped out, literally. It's just a, a horrible thing. He's got to back out. So now they got to decide how are they going to do this? Now, ordinarily, what would have happened, any other generals, if somebody had been somebody other than Sherman, he'd have said, how come Grant did this to me? Why didn't he come like he promised? He's just out to get me. He wants to get all the glory. He was afraid I was, and so on and so on and so on. Doesn't happen. The friendship stays firm. And there's a long, you know, the story of all the different things that Grant tries, et cetera, et cetera. And he comes up, of course, with a plan that finally works marching the army along the uh, western side of the Mississippi River, sending the uh, Union fleet under the uh, the guns at Vicksburg, and then they would cart, literally ferry, the soldiers on the western bank to the eastern bank below, and then capture Vicksburg. Why do they go through all this? Because the land basically north of Vicksburg and east of Vicksburg is swampy, and so you've got to get to dry land, so they get to dry land. Now, one of the things that Grant does, and here's one of those examples, I think, except for the friendship, it wouldn't have worked. Remember I said that Sherman gets wiped out at Chickasaw Bayou. Grant says, Sherman, I'm not telling you you have to do this. I'm asking you. If you want to do it, okay. If you don't want to, you don't have to. What I'd like you to do, while I'm moving down the Army south, I want you to attack at Haynes Bluff, fake an attack, faint, a feint at Haynes Bluff. Now the problem with that is, and Sherman sees this and Grant sees this, 
the newspaper reporters are going to say, aha, Sherman attacked in the same place. He's forced to leave again. So Grant says, I don't want to put you through that because I know what the reporters will say. And Sherman says, no, I'll do it. If you want me to do it, Grant, I'll do it. It's the fact that they trust each other so much that Sherman is willing to take the risk of really being driven out of the army, but he'll do it because his friend uh, Grant needs, and it works. It works. Sherman faints at the Haynes Bluff, Chickasaw Bayou. Meanwhile, Grant is going along, lands below Vicksburg, comes up on the dry land in the east, and then moves up, splits the Confederates uh, between Jackson and, and Vicksburg, and eventually uh, wins out and wins this thing. What is, Grant, what is Sherman doing during all this time? Sherman does his feint, and then he immediately comes back, and he spends most of his time making sure that Grant's supply line is steady. Because, yes, Grant did live off the land in Mississippi, but he also had a, a supply line going, and that's because of what Sherman did. Yeah. Well, I was also thinking about generals in the war on both sides. After Chickasaw Bio, anybody else would have been relieved. I mean, that you yeah. know, he failed, therefore yeah. you, yeah. you put him out and put your, put your other buddy in as, that's as, right. as that's, a commander. That's a, very, that's a very, very good point, yeah, and that didn't happen. The okay. Sherman stayed on. There are a number of instances, uh, even before this, where uh, Grant almost quit the Army, after Shiloh, not because of what happened at Shiloh, because it was a great victory for him based on his determination, etc. But Halleck, General Halleck, who thought, always thought till the very end that Grant was a terrible general. He didn't fill his paperwork out properly. He didn't, he didn't, do, you know, <laughs> he didn't do those things. And so what he does is he comes down, takes over command of the army, 100,000 uh, Union soldiers, and they're going to attack Corinth, the railroad junction at Corinth where two railroads cross. But what does he do to Grant? He makes Grant second in command, but then he doesn't ask him about anything. Grant is just left out on the, on the lurch. And Grant gets so upset that he is ready to quit. He's packing up his letters and everything. He's ready to go home. Sherman hears about this, and he comes and he says, Grant, is this true what you're saying? Yes, Sherman, I can't take any more of this. And Sherman says to Grant, don't do it. Stay. He says, you remember, they called me crazy. <laughs> and they've called you a drunk. And both of those things are lies. So we'll come back from this. So don't leave. I'll think about it, says Grant. And he stays. Now imagine if Grant had left at that time. You know, if you like what ifs. Okay, so let's get Grant promoted, and he's back in Virginia okay. with the Army of the Potomac, and Sherman is now out west, and he's heading east. He's, heading, he's moving in this direction. That's right. McClellan, you remember, just to back it up a little bit, McClellan was commanding general of all the armies. And then Lincoln went through a bunch of other people. Until he settles in, in July of 1862, he settles on Henry W. Halleck. Henry W. Halleck is considered the greatest military mind of this period. He wrote the book. He wrote the book on how to fight a war. Lincoln says, hey, this guy must know something, you know. So he brings him as commanding general. It doesn't really work out. Uh, Halleck does it for a couple years. He doesn't provide Lincoln with the kind of advice that Lincoln's looking for. So he turns to the man who's been so successful in the West, Ulysses S. Grant. He calls Grant to Washington, and he says, I'm going to give you a promotion. And Grant doesn't realize what's going on, that he's not calling him to Washington just to give him the promotion, but they're going to give him command of all the armies. And so when Grant is going east, going to Virginia, Sherman hears about it, and they're still together in the west. And he said, Grant, don't do it. Don't do it. He said, going to Washington with all those politicians and all those newsmen, you'll go crazy. Don't do it. You can stay here and you can win the war from here. Grant said, oh, they're not going to make me commander. I mean, gee whiz. But they do. They do. And so what you have happening then is you have Sherman becomes commander in the West, 
taking Grant's place. Grant becomes overall commander over all the Union armies, but the determination is made that he is going to stay with the Army of the Potomac. George Meade is the commander of the Army of the Potomac. He stays in that role throughout the rest of the war. But Grant is with him, and Grant gives orders to the Army of the Potomac through Meade. And the reason he does it is he understands that there could be some difficulty between the, uh, the Easterners being under the command of a, of a Westerner. But they get together, do Grant and Sherman, in April of 1864, and they come up with a new kind of warfare. And this is something Lincoln has been talking about for a long time. Halleck, remember I said, wrote this great book. But Halleck's idea is the old Joe Minion, the old European way of fighting. You mass your troops and you maneuver them against fractions of the enemy and you defeat them and you capture a place like you capture Richmond or you capture Washington or you capture Corinth. Lincoln has come to the conclusion that doesn't make sense. The Union Army has many more soldiers than the Confederate Army. What the Union Army needs to be doing is attacking simultaneously along every front. So when Grant and Sherman meet in Chattanooga and Nashville and a couple other places, they come up with this idea that on May 4th, I believe, 3rd, 4th, I never can remember, Grant's going to attack Lee in Virginia. Sherman is going to attack Joe Johnston in Georgia. And the idea is to keep the pressure on both these fronts so that neither Lee can, can leave Virginia to reinforce Johnston. Johnston can't leave the West. And so the result is a, um, a, a simultaneous effort. And there's other, some other things going on, too. But the idea is just attack simultaneously. This is what, what Lincoln has been wanting, a general, generals that can do that. This is what both Grant and Sherman agree with. This is what, what they give him. Now, we know what's going on in, in Virginia, the, the stalemate uh, in Virginia. And what is Sherman doing? Sherman is attacking Johnston between Chattanooga and Atlanta. And he gets there. And he gets there at a very important time. He drives away the uh, Confederate Army. And he captures Atlanta. Who cares? Remember, Lincoln doesn't care about that. He's looking to destroy the, the other army. But he gets Atlanta, and he decides then that he's going to do something else. Remember I said this depression that Sherman went through early in the war about having to fight against his friends? So he decides that I am not going to fight the kind of war that is being fought in this, in this civil war. That is people getting killed and killed and maimed and injured, huge casualties. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do a different kind of war. I'm going to do a war of destruction. I am going to use a war of psychology. I'm going to get inside the Confederate mind that will convince them that they cannot survive that there's no way their government or their army can protect them. How can I do that? By marching through the interior of the Confederacy and destroying. And that's exactly what he does. The march to the sea, of course, gets to Savannah. Throughout this time, there are a number of times when Sherman says in letters and other things to some of the generals along the route, what you need to do is quit this fight. Once you stop this civil war, Confederates, I will become your best friend. But as long as you keep fighting, I will use destructive war to bring you to your senses, as, as he put it. So you have this situation. For example, when Sherman gets to Atlanta, he conveniently leaves an opening for, at that time, John Bell Hood, who's the commanding officer, to get away because he doesn't want to kill Confederates. He gets to Savannah. He conveniently leaves one of the causeways open for Hardy's army to escape. So you have this situation. And I might note, too, that when he gets to Savannah, even before he gets there, the mayor of the city meets him on a road outside the city carrying a white flag and saying, I surrender. 
But what did Sherman say he was going to do when Confederate Center? I'll become your best friend. So what does he do? He goes into Savannah. His soldiers go into Savannah. His soldiers are now are paying for things. They're not stealing things. They're not. Do, they're buying things. Sherman makes an effort to get food from the north to people in Savannah so they will have something to eat, to the point that the uh, uh, Board of Aldermen, I guess you'd call it as a different name, but the Board of Aldermen issue a resolution of thanks to William Tecumseh Sherman for his help in this particular time. Okay, now what's he going to do now? Well, Grant says... Tell you what, Sherman, I want you to get on board some ships. I'm going to send you some ships. I want you to come get those, sailor, those soldiers on those ships, get them to Virginia, and between the two of us, we'll crush Robert E. Lee. And Sherman goes into a depression again, the second time during this war, and he's thinking, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go back to that kind of war where I'm having to kill people and shoot people, et cetera, et cetera. So he says to uh, Grant, Grant, it's not going to work. If I put my soldiers on those ships, they're going to be cramped up, something fierce. And by, when they get there, they're not going to be in any shape to fight anyway. I would rather march through the Carolinas and get behind uh, Lee that way. Because the whole idea was to come and, and have Sherman and Grant on either side of Lee so he can't escape. So that's the, the, the thinking uh, that he's going through. And then, of course, he feels a little bit differently uh, once he crosses the border into South Carolina about dealing with things. Later on, he, after the war, he and Joe Johnson talk about what had gone yeah, on. Right. And General Johnson, the Confederate commander, couldn't figure out how on earth Sherman got his army from Savannah to Columbia. It was the rainiest season they had had in 25 years. The rivers were about three miles wide. There was all swamp, Pocatalago swamp, all of that. Somehow, they managed. They managed. Because Sherman was determined. They built bridges. They built corduroy roads. And as you point out, at one point, the soil was so marshy, there were three levels of logs. A corduroy road is logs cut down. To, there were three logs deep. And sometimes as they march across, they'd pop up. You don't want to be a mule uh, in, in those circumstances, no, no. But his plan, as we all know, was to faint towards Charleston, faint towards yep. Augusta. Columbia was always his goal. Well, it's maybe, yes, that's one of those things. I don't know if there's a, if there's a real answer because Columbia was a very important city uh, in the Civil War, a very important railroad place very important uh, supply place, et cetera. Well, really, the, what the, the, the way that Lee's army was supplied from the further south. So you would think it would make sense that he should have hit Augusta. Because after all, Augusta had a lot of, uh, of uh, munitions. equipment. Munitions. That's munitions, the word I'm looking for. Powder factory. Yeah. yeah, but he doesn't. His concept still is, I simply want to break my way through to show the Confederates that the Confederacy is an empty shell. And I might mention the, the point you made, a very good point about how did he, how did he pull this off with the, with the water and the swamps and everything. Well, Joe Johnston um, later on said, you know, I was watching what you were doing, Sherman. And I said to myself, Sherman, you have the greatest army since Caesar. I can't imagine anybody else able to do what you did to get to uh, Columbia or to even start. Because, you know, the, 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 the march to the Carolinas was, was delayed for almost a month because of the terrible, terrible water. And imagine building a bridge uh, across some swampy area in January or February. The cold water, how terrible it must have been. But it was done. You point out that in Georgia, where they had been foraging, they were relatively selective in their mm -hmm. violence against property. Railroads, telegraph lines, no question about that. But Sherman wrote Slocum, don't forget that when you cross the Savannah River, you will be in South Carolina. You need not be so careful about private property as you have been. Yep. Yeah, there's no doubt about And One of the things that's, that's sometimes not, not even considered, but the Army itself 
Sherman's army was probably angrier at South Carolina than Sherman was. Sherman, after all, had spent time in South Carolina, knew, knew South Carolina people. But the average soldier, and remember, these are 17, 18, 19-year-old kids, basically, and they're, they're soaked to the gills. I mean, they're mud up to their noses, and they're saying, what am I doing here? It's those South Carolinians that they hadn't seceded and started this whole mess. I wouldn't be in the situation I am today. So, yeah, you do have that. So there is, there is a, a feeling of real animosity toward uh, South Carolinians. South Carolina took a, a greater beating, certainly more than North Carolina, and probably more than Georgia. No question about this. But when we get to Columbia, this is where you really, really get into some, you know, some really big difficulties as to exactly what happened, because this is where memory comes in. People remember what they want to remember. And as historians, our job is to look at all the facts and make some sense out of them. What really happened? What do we think really happened? Not saying we're going to be necessarily right, because we're not. We're human beings, too. We make historians that make a lot of mistakes, after all. But in the case of something like this, various people have different memories. The soldiers had a different memory of what happened. The civilians had a different memory of what happened. The, the slaves who are becoming free as a result of this have different remembrances of, uh, of this thing. Uh, there's a man named Marion Lucas. I don't know if you're familiar. I know you. Columbia boy. Columbia boy. Uh, Colum graduate of Columbia High School. Got his history from Miss Hannah Pearlstein. Right. And he's, uh, what, I think he was a graduate of University of South Carolina. He, he I think, did. I think so. But he wrote a book on the Columbia fire, which is still considered the best book on that particular topic. And what he basically says is that what happened in uh, Columbia, the fires and all, was a result of three things, whiskey, cotton, and what's the third? Wind. Wind. How could I forget wind? Yeah, wind. His interpretation is what happened in Columbia is an accident of war. You can blame Sherman, you can blame his army, but you can blame Hampton, you can blame Beauregard, you can blame Confederate people who, who were looting even before the army got here, et cetera, et cetera. After Marion Lucas's book yeah. came out, because the wind was very, very important, right. coming from the northwest, about 30 miles an hour. And most people forget that Columbia had, had a similar fire in 1850. All of Main Street was burned, yeah. Richardson yeah. Street. Right. But we know from the old insurance maps that most all the roofs in Columbia were wooden, and a lot of them weren't cedar shakes, they were pine shakes. And pine shakes, after being dried out in the Columbia sun, are going to be pretty flammable. Now, I've seen a recent person say, well, cotton may have been on fire, but it was put out. Folks, when you set a cotton bale on fire, you don't put it out. <laughs> it smolders. It smolders, huh? It smolders. And as Lucas points out in his book, Marion Lucas, there are as many examples of Union soldiers protecting Columbia property as there are of Union soldiers burning. Now, some of the, those burning, like Dr. Gibbs, whose house was burned and as it was broken into, said a Union soldier with a lucifer, which is a match, is a most unpleasant guest on yes. a windy night. Um, yes. Well, I think, you know, I think that that's very well said. But I like to go back to the regard to Sherman. If you look at Sherman's activities during the march to the sea, through the Carolinas, etc., one of the things that's very striking, and I don't have the figures at the top of my head, but if you look at the number of people that were killed during the march to the sea and the march to the Carolinas and compare it to any battle in the Civil War, how many more people died in one or two days than died in three or four months? A lot of houses were burned. A lot of cotton was burned. A lot of things happened, but a lot of human beings were not killed. And that's really the, the essence of, of Sherman's thinking. Now, whether that's a good way of thinking or a bad way of thinking is something that I think every historian has looked at and people decide one way, one way or another. But it is, a, it is a, an important factor, I think, that, that Sherman did actually save a number of lives, interestingly enough. And what's really fascinating to me is after the war, what happens after the war? 
between Sherman and Joe Johnston and Hood and all these other people, they're all buddies. Sherman, in fact, uh, his daughter tries to sell John Bell Hood's letters. She's not successful. Nobody seems to want to buy them, but she's in charge of those things. And by the way, they've been discovered now. And supposedly we're going to get a whole new view of John Bell Hood. But Joe Johnston and Sherman used to meet together at Sherman's house when Johnston was a, a member of the House of Representatives and Sherman was commanding general. And one of the daughters talked about how they would spread a map out on, on the living room floor and they'd refight the battles. <laughs> uh, you know, you say, well, a couple old geezers, you know, but still they got along. They understood. In fact, Sherman argued that if, if the soldiers had been left in control of things after the war, everything would have been solved. Well, let's get to the surrender in North Carolina and the flack that Sherman took for the generous terms that he gave yeah. Joe Johnston. Right. No question about it. When the Union Army got to North Carolina, left South Carolina behind, got to North Carolina, the situation changed. It was not as vociferous war of destruction. It was still going on. They, 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 were, they would light pine trees, you know, and the, with a sap coming up and set them on fire, and it looked very nice uh, uh, during the night, et cetera. But <laughs> what Waller's talking about is when the war is coming to an end, and it's clear the war is coming to an end, Lee has, has, is surrendering in Virginia. Joe Johnston is going to surrender to Sherman. Now, remember what Sherman had said all through the war. As long as you fight, I will do what I have to do to, to, to end the secession. But once you quit, once you throw down your arms, I will become your best friend. And this is precisely what happens in the Sherman-Johnston negotiations. Sherman gives away the store. I think it would be a fair way of saying it. He sets it up in such a way that, for example, the soldiers would be allowed to take their arms and carry them back to the state armories. And you can list any number of other things. Slaves. He says nothing about slavery in the agreement. What he basically does is he tries to get the whole thing settled, that all the other armies will quit. Well, this gets back to Washington. You remember what had happened? Lincoln had been assassinated. And when the Johnston-Sherman agreement was going on, this is when news comes of Lincoln's assassination. And it's, it's a horrible, horrible time. Lots of conspiracy theories, et cetera, et cetera. But we do know that Andrew Johnson becomes president. Well, Sherman's agreement comes to Washington. He sends one of his officers and with it, it. It goes through General Halleck. Yes, yes, yes. But, it, but the, the, the thing is, as it gets there, they look at it, the cabinet and, uh, and Andrew Johnson look and say, we can't allow this. Grant, you go down to North Carolina and you relieve, fire Sherman, and you take over his army. So what does Grant do? He goes down to North Carolina, but these are friends. He says, Sherman, you screwed up. This was a terrible thing you did. And Sherman said, yeah, I understand that. You know, that, that's, that'll be okay. I, no problem. We'll, we can change it. I thought this would work. Grant goes back, etc. Well, what happens then? Then Stanton puts a number of uh, newspaper articles, Halleck, number of newspaper articles basically saying Sherman's a traitor. William Tecumseh Sherman is a traitor for this agreement that he made with Joe Johnston. That's when Sherman really gets steamed. And there is fear that he is going to go to Washington because they, you know, they go, go up there for the grand review and that Sherman is going to use his army to clean out those politicians and, <laughs> and those newsmen. And his brother has to come and say, settle down. So what Sherman basically does the day of the grand review, you know, he leads his army past the reviewing stand, the president, all these people are there. And he gets off his horse and he walks onto the stand and everybody's shaking hands. He gets to Stanton and Stanton offers his hand and Sherman looks the other way and passes him by, snubs him in front of everybody. And once that happens, that's fine. He, he got it out of his system, and it's all over. 
But to understand what, how Sherman felt, he saw this as simply fulfilling a promise. You stop fighting, and I will become your best friend. So much so, the South understood this, so much so that beginning in 1868, every four years there was a presidential election, Sherman was boomed for the presidency. And you know who got the whole thing started in 1868? Southern newspapers. Southern newspapers said, Sherman's our guy. He understands us. He lived here. He, he wanted to take care of us in this agreement. Sherman is never going to run for president. Sherman says, you know, if I have my choice between the penitentiary and the White House, I'll take the penitentiary. <laughs> so so that, that's, that, that's it. <laughs> okay. John, I want to thank you for being with us for this very entertaining conversation on the American Civil War. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I need to add a postscript description of this particular session since it was before a live audience, standing room only of nearly 350 individuals who listened intently and asked very good questions about Sherman, the man, and his visit to Columbia in February 1865. It was a fascinating conversation, and Professor Marzalak interacted beautifully with a receptive audience. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.